Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is the Friday follow-up episode for our season premiere episode and our coverage of the West Memphis 3 case, episode 501, The Forgotten 3. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. So to begin this week's Friday follow-up, I want to take just a minute to explain to any of you new listeners, because it seems like we do have quite a few, how the Friday follow-up episodes work. Each week on Sundays, we release what we call our main episodes, and those are put together and formatted much like you just heard in episode 501. Then after the main episodes drop, we give you the listeners about three days to get in your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your theories, so we can put together these Friday follow-up episodes. These episodes are all about you. It's about answering questions that you might have or giving you the opportunity to have a voice about what's going on in the case. Now, as we move forward, the one thing you're going to notice is that the tone of these episodes is very different from the main episodes that you hear on Sundays. The primary difference is the fact that we don't do a whole lot of editing with these episodes. They're typically very conversational. That voice you just heard a few minutes ago, that is Mike Bussing, our executive producer. Mike does all of the editing for the podcast, helps produce the episodes, and really just keeps things afloat and running around here. So the way these works is Mike becomes your voice. He poses the questions to me that you all have. As I mentioned in the credits of episode 501, there's a few different ways that you can get your questions, comments, and theories to us. The most common way people do it is on our Facebook page. We make a post every week posting the episode, and that's usually the first place that Mike looks. So you can always just comment underneath that post because we always go through those. Another way is to post your question or your comment or whatever you have on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page. Now, that page we don't run. It's run and moderated by listeners, but we know there's tons of discussion that happens over there, so we usually go there and look for things to use in the Friday follow-up. The format for posting on the Truth and Justice podcast fan page is in the first line of your post, please type the episode number you're referring to. So at the top, you'd put episode 501, and then go down and ask your question or make your statement or whatever you want to put in there. Now, the place where I'm the most active is on Twitter, and our Twitter handle is at truthjusticepod. So you can always tweet at me or reply to the episode post or send a direct message there. So again, that's at TruthJusticePod on Twitter. You can also just send us an email, and our email address is theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And in the subject line, please just put the episode number that you're referring to so we can help track these. And then lastly, you can always call our voicemail tip line. That phone number is 269-224-2833. And as I mentioned before, if you do happen to leave a voicemail on the tip line, those are fair game to be played here on the podcast in the Friday follow-up episodes. However, if you don't want your voicemail played, just say so in the voicemail. Just say, I don't want this on the episode. I just wanted to ask this question or make this statement. So those are all the ways that you can get in touch with us. And we use that information to put together these Friday follow-up episodes, which is what we're about to begin right after a quick break for a sponsor. Okay, Bob. First, Tracy has three questions for us. First, she asks, I was wondering what case files Bob has been able to use to start investigating this case. Well, one nice thing about this being a very widely publicized case is the fact that there's a ton of case documents out there on the internet for anyone to access. When we first started investigating the case, we were using a site called Callahan. I think it's callahan.mysite. And on that website, you can find most of the documents for this case. All the trial transcripts are there. There's a lot of audio on the website police notes, 
Just about anything you can think of is on the site. Now, it's not all there, but there's a lot of it there. And then, of course, we've been in communication with Jason Baldwin and Damian Eccles and some of the other investigators in the case. So we have a lot that we're working with, but most of the documents can be accessed by any of you by going to the Callahan site. And then once we get our site, truthandjusticepod.com, up and running, we're kind of going through a redesign right now, and it may even be up and running by the time you hear this episode. Each week on the website, we will put the relevant case documents to that site. So if you want to follow along with what we're doing, the truthandjusticepod.com website would be a good place to start with that. All right, next she wants to know, do the families of the boys know that this podcast is reinvestigating the case? Most of them do, yes. Uh, we have had long conversations with John Mark Byers, who is Christopher Byers' dad. Christopher's mother, Melissa, unfortunately has passed away. We've also had conversations with Pam Hobbs, who's actually now Pam Hicks, who is Stevie Branch's mother. We've spoken to her on a couple of occasions. She's aware of the podcast. We've also talked to her sister, and we've had some communication with Stevie's then-stepdad, Terry Hobbs. So Christopher's dad and Stevie Branch's parents are aware that it's happening. Now, the Moores, Todd and Dana Moore, have never really been involved in any of the publicity about this case. They didn't really want to be involved with the documentaries of Paradise Lost or West of Memphis. I did try to reach out to them through Facebook and haven't been able to connect with them. But from what everyone has told me, my suspicion is that they're not going to want to have anything to do with this. And for what it's worth, from what I've heard, they believe that the three that were convicted of this murder are the ones that actually did it. So they're not real open to anyone reinvestigating. But definitely Christopher Byers and Stevie Branch, the parents of those two, are very much aware of what we're doing. All right, and then last she wants to know, will Jim Clemente do another profile for us for this case? Possibly. I have talked to Jim quite a bit about the case, and he may be doing a profile, but we're hoping to use someone else for this one, and we'll get into later why we're doing that, but someone is equally as qualified, if not even more so, we're hoping will be the one to actually do the profile in this case, but we will be doing a professional expert profile on the case at some point, yes. Moving on, Kimberly says, Hello, Bob and Mike. I'm so glad you guys are investigating this case because it has always broken my heart that these three little boys never got justice. I know they will now that the Truth and Justice Army is on the case. Her question is, at 7 p.m., did Chris Wall only see Stevie and Chris riding towards Turtle Hill, or did he see Michael Moore as well? Thanks for all you do. That's a really good question. And that's, you know, as we said... Uh, there were about 35 sightings of the boys that day, and for episode 501, we had to create a timeline based on what seemed credible and what worked. So, you know, we did things like, did they identify the boys by name? Did they give a good description? Or did they get, you know, because there was some people, and, and uh, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, I'll think about it as soon as we're done recording, that reported that he saw the boys going into the Robin Hood woods somewhere around 6.15 to 6.30, somewhere around there. But then when you look at the report, you see that he actually saw four boys going in there. And there were some other issues with his report that didn't seem to add up to be Michael Moore, Chris Byers, and Stevie Branch. So after that, I did land on finding Chris Wall's statement to be credible. And the reason for that is, is he wasn't giving a statement that just kind of matched the hysteria that was going on, meaning he didn't say, I saw three. He said he only saw two of them. So no, he did not see Michael Moore. He said that he saw, and he knew Christopher Byers at least, if not Stevie Branch too, off the top of my head, but he saw Stevie Branch riding his bike towards the Turtle Hill Woods on the very west side of the neighborhood on Macaulay, heading towards where the pipe bridge would be, and he saw Christopher Byers on the back of the bike. 
Well, from several other sightings, we know that that's exactly how those two were riding. That Chris was originally on a skateboard, then he got on the back of Stevie Branch's bike. So we also have a good timestamp because he was in class that night. And so he knows when he got out of class. And when he came back, he said it would be right around 7 o'clock when he saw the boys. So the question is, why would we not throw that one out because he only saw two? Well, my opinion was, again, it sounded credible because we have Christopher Byers on the back of Stevie Branch's bike, and we know for a fact that that's exactly what was going on then. He seems sure of the timing. He knows the boys. And in my opinion, I would assume that on a little eight-year-old's bike with a boy on the back of it, you would be riding slower than someone who was riding on their own, meaning Michael Moore, because Michael Moore didn't have anybody on the back of his bike. So my assumption, and and I hope it's a little more than just an assumption, but based on what he said and how the boys were moving, I have assumed always that Michael Moore was up ahead of them because he was going faster and he didn't have somebody on the back of his bike. Of course, he could have been behind them too, but it's also been widely stated that Michael Moore was kind of the, quote, leader of the group too. So I would assume that Stevie and Christopher would have been following Michael. That's a good point. I want to stop you right there, Bob, and ask you, can we talk about the theory that was projected in 501, which was that the boys ran away? How did we come to that conclusion? Yeah, so this is something that a lot of people have brought up. And to me, I believe that it is one of the most common misconceptions about the case. Uh, and this is due to the fact that the boys' victimology was never really covered in any of the documentaries. And in the Hollywood dramatization, The Devil's Not, it, it appears that the boys are out playing in the woods or exploring. But when you break down the timeline and you look at, when you really look at victimology, in my opinion, the boys were running away from something. Now, now we have the clear statement from uh, Bobby Posey when the police were going door to door that Chris had stopped by and said, my daddy whipped me and I'm running away. So, and, and it's, it's important to point out when I, when I asked Mark Byers about this, because he wasn't aware of it, Mark Byers is um, Christopher's dad. He said, no, you know, he would never be running away. He wouldn't do anything like that. And I'm not saying that Mark had done anything wrong or right or that it was, that he was really running away. But for an eight-year-old boy to get punished, I don't think it's out of the question for them to decide I'm running away from home because I got punished. But in this case, like I said, we know that we have this report that he had stopped by there and said he was running away. Now, I also want to talk about for a minute uh, the whole situation with Bobby Posey because the police note is hard to read. It does say that Chris stopped by and said his daddy whipped him and that he was going to run away. But there's another name in that report that we believe says Carlos in a last name we we can't read. So I think that Bobby Posey may have been at someone else's house when that encounter happened. We're still working out those details. We have tracked down Bobby Posey and we're waiting to hear back from him. But so in any case, we know that Christopher Byers said that he was running away. So that's one of the reasons that I've made the assertion that they were running away. Now, the other one is Stevie Branch. According to his mother, he's, he's never run away. He's never not come home when he was supposed to. And according to the witness statements, uh, Jamie Clark Ballard and her sister Brandy, Stevie's dad was directly yelling at all three of them to get back down there. So Stevie knows that he's late. And it may have been that he just missed his curfew. I don't know. But whatever happened between 5 o'clock when he was supposed to be home and 7 o'clock when he seed right towards the woods, I believe that something happened in that period of time that made Stevie not want to go home. And it, it could have been uh, just past experience that he knew he was going to be in trouble. Maybe he knew that he was going to get a spanking or something. I don't know, and I don't want to speculate. 
But I do believe that he did not want to go home. He knew at that point that he was supposed to be home and still chose not to go home. So the fact that Stevie knows in one way or another, he knows he's supposed to be home. He's already missed his curfew and chooses not to go home, which, according to the family, is out of character for him to do that. I believe that he was running away in, in, in a, to an extent. He was running away from something. Now, I also do want to point out that just because I said they are running away, that, that maybe Christopher's running away from his dad and, and who knows, Stevie may have been running away from, from his stepdad, I'm not saying that that means that they were chased in the woods by one of their, their fathers or stepfathers and that's who killed them. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that's how they got to the woods. So I believe that they were running away from something. They were they were on a mission. They were going to a place where they thought that they could get away and hide and, and couldn't be found. And, and they very well could have run across someone or something else in those woods once they got there that, that could have actually caused their demise. But I believe that they were definitely on a mission running away. Do we know if any of the kids actually played over there in the past? We don't know if any or all of them have, but what we do know is that Chris Byers had not, or, or at least that seems to be the case, because his brother had testified that they'd been down to the bayou, the main bayou, and had been fishing before, and Ryan, Chris's brother, wanted to go across the pipe, and Chris wouldn't do it. He was afraid. He said, nope, he wouldn't go over there. So it was definitely out of character, and, and, and when we spoke with John Mark Byers, his dad, too, he said that, no, Christopher was always afraid to go over there on the other side of the pipe. So we only really know about that one, but it was definitely out of character for Chris to cross the pipe. All right, and Haley wants to know, does a timeline exist of all the credible sightings of Michael, Stevie, and Christopher on the day they were killed? She said she checked the TNJ website, but hasn't seen anything related to season five yet. Like I'd mentioned at the beginning, we're still working on getting that up to date, and we probably will end up putting up some kind of a graphic of a timeline. But the problem is, it's tricky, because like I said, you have 35 sightings, and some of them don't add up. You know, we have um, one woman that says that, you know, she saw the boys in the street and almost ran them over at 530 in the afternoon. But the problem is she said she saw all three and we know that all three of them weren't together at that time. And there were some other issues with her statement too, saying they, they had a backpack or they were all three on bikes. So there's things like that. It's like, well, it seems like a good statement or that, that she had actually seen that. But when you look at the details, it's like, it doesn't sound like that happened. Uh, so there's a lot of that, and and it's not like we could direct you to even the Callahan site and say, oh, go here, go look at the timeline, because it's all over the place. There's door-to-door -door discussions, there's witness interviews later, there's, and everything's broken down by person. So, I mean, it took us months to get through everything to really piece together the timeline that we gave you this week. So, yes, at some point, we with the information we gave you during this episode, we, we do have a timeline that I worked on. It was kind of um, almost like a Venn diagram of where uh, Stevie and Michael were and where Christopher was and where they overlapped. Um, so we'll probably put something like that up. But I believe that in that discussion on the fan page, there were several people that wanted to get together and create a timeline. And that's a big part of how this process works, too, is it's all about you guys, the listeners, kind of helping us out in, in crowdsourcing this. So if anybody has the ability to do really nice graphic work like that, yeah, you know, let's let's get together, shoot us an email or whatever, and we'll maybe we'll send you the timeline we have and you can put something together that Katie can get up onto the website for us. Okay, Corrine says, I don't know how things operate over in the US, but here in the UK, young kids up to the age of eleven aren't allowed to exit the school grounds. The teachers won't release the students until they can see the person waiting to collect them. 
Did Christopher leave the school grounds at the same time as the rest of the kids? Did any other kids walk, at least part of the way, home with him? Someone must have surely seen him. Well, there's a couple layers to unpack there. So first of all, would the schools allow kids to just leave like that? And the answer is yes, definitely back in 1993. You know, I think about when I was an elementary school kid, which was a little before 93, I walked home and it was, you know, the bell rang and I went outside and I left, you know, but I think it was a different world and a different time back then. And also keep in mind that the Weaver Elementary is sitting right almost in the middle of this little neighborhood. So people are walking, you know, a block or two blocks to get home from there. But I also have to say that even today where my kids go to school, yes, there is a protocol for people riding the bus and being picked up by parents. They have to make sure that they see the parents. But then also I know that like my stepdaughter, when she was in elementary school here, the, the school building is literally in our backyard. Uh, she had to, she was listed as a walker. So uh, my wife, Becky, had to fill out a form saying that Bella's allowed to walk home. But then when school got out, she just walked home. So that's not entirely uncommon. And, and again, it's going to be all about perspective. If you live in New York City or Chicago, probably not. Maybe. I don't know. But when you live in a, a smaller town in a smaller little neighborhood, I don't think it's uncommon at all for especially back in 1993, for kids to be able to walk home. As far as did anyone see them walking home, especially Christopher, we don't know. I know we know that John Mark Byers went and looked on the playground equipment. He had Ryan looking for him. And, and literally, so if you walk out of the front of Weaver Elementary and turn left, the first building you come to is Michael Moore's house. And then you cross the street and there is Christopher Byers' house. So it was right there, but not a lot of space to get lost there. Uh, but at, at this point, we have no one who has come forward who saw Christopher Byers during that period of time. And I think that that period of time may be a, kind of a critical look into the window of what was going on with him that day. And, and it was not common. It, Mark Byers says that it was completely out of the ordinary, both in discussions I've had and his old statements, for Christopher not to come home. He said he may, you know, stop and swing on the swings for a couple of minutes or, you know, go down the slide or stop and talk to a friend. but. You know, he'd still be home within five, ten minutes of when he was supposed to be. The fact that he didn't show up home for over an hour after school let out was not common at all. And Mark Byers was very concerned at that time. Okay, along those lines, Sarah writes to us, Was it normal for that time and area for eight-year-olds to be out playing for several hours and not checking in with parents? The number of adults leaving to go elsewhere and not concerned about children not being back when they were supposed to is mind-blowing for me. I have a seven and a half year old and can't imagine letting him go out alone for hours at a time, much less have him fail to be home in time and think, oh, well, I'll just go ahead and leave without him. Well, again, it's, it's all about perception and, and where you're from. So it's, it's the neighborhood and it's the time in 1993. Now, I'll say this. It's 2017 and I have an almost seven year old, uh, my little boy Parker, who turned seven in January, who on almost a daily basis in the afternoon takes off riding bikes with his friends. And we live in a, a small neighborhood in a, a pretty small town, and he knows his rules where he can be, and we check on him. But, you know, he has a couple little friends that live right nearby that as soon as we get home from school, come running over in their bicycles and want to know if Parker can go play. Parker straps on his little helmet, gets on his bike, and they take off, and they have to stay on our side of the street. And we live in the type of neighborhood where I can look out and like, oh, okay, he's down there at Colin's house, or he's down there with Maya. But it's a neighborhood where we feel comfortable. Uh, we we kind of know a lot of people in the neighborhood. People are kind of keeping an eye on him. And as long as I stay in a certain area, they ride their bike. So this is now in 2017. Back in 1993, um, again, I go back to my childhood. 
shoot, we would take off for, you know, we had the same rules that Michael Moore had, which was, you know, be home when the streetlights come on. You know, we'd go out in the afternoon and and ride our bikes and go play in the woods and, and do all kinds of things like that. So I, I don't think it's uncommon at all for them to be out unsupervised on their bikes. It definitely wasn't for these three. I know from reading reports and talking to the parents, like for them to go out in this neighborhood and ride around and play on their bikes was perfectly normal. As far as the parents leaving without them, well, that's a different story. And, and it's, I don't think that it's that any of them were not concerned with this. It was just more that they didn't have a choice. So let's look at the uh, Byers first. So you have Ryan, Christopher Byers' brother. He had to be in court. There was no choice. He was he was a witness in a case about a car accident or something. And he was subpoenaed. He had to be in court. And and they actually pushed it back. They were they were supposed to be there at like three thirty, and they were still so frantically looking for Chris that they pushed it and pushed it until they said they they had to go. Until so they took off. Now. Again, a little bit different time. They figured when Chris gets home, like he was supposed to, because he was originally going to be home before anybody was home, just to, to chill outside and just wait for a minute until everybody gets there. But it it wasn't that they just didn't care. Mark Byers was concerned, but he didn't have a choice. He had to take Ryan to court. So he drove him to court just right over the bridge, because Memphis, Tennessee is just on the other side of the bridge there. It's about, we've done it, maybe 10-minute drive. Drove over the bridge, dropped Ryan off, picked Melissa up at work, and comes back. So, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine leaving and not knowing where my kid was, but as far as, you know, the area and the time and the fact they didn't have a choice, I don't know what I think other than I I don't think that it's totally out of the the ordinary for them to say, okay, I got to go. I'm going to drop him off and come back and hopefully he's back then. I don't think that at this point, too, remember, we have kind of hindsight. We know what happened, you know, as opposed to the, the parents of the time that really just thought he's screwing around somewhere and he's supposed to be home by now. Now, go back down to Stevie Branch's house, Pam and Terry Hobbs. Again, Pam had to be to work. And it's also important to point out that Catfish Island, the restaurant she worked at, was maybe a three-minute drive away. I mean, it was, it, was, it was just barely out of the neighborhood. It was just right around the corner. So, you know, it, again, they didn't want to leave without knowing where he was at, but she had to be to work. So they figured they'd make the quick trip, drop him off, come back, maybe go look for him. So it's, it's, it's obviously awful how all this turned out, but... I don't think that it's just really that out of the ordinary, certainly not in 1993, certainly not in this neighborhood with these people for the boys to be allowed to go out and play on their bikes. And if they're not home and they got to go do something to quickly go run that errand, you know, I, I don't think they go to the store to buy a jug of milk, but when you have to be to court and you have to be to work, I can see exactly why they took off and did that, I guess I'm saying. This next question comes from Robin. Is it true that all three boys were living with adopted slash stepfathers? I thought it might have been true with at least two of them. No, it's not. So Todd and Dana Moore, Todd Moore is Michael Moore's biological father. So he he had no adopted or stepfather or anything. Stevie Branch, Terry Hobbs was his stepfather. And then we have Christopher Byers' dad is John Mark Byers. He is not a biological father. He is also not a stepfather. He is his adoptive father. From what I understand, Chris's dad was never really in the picture. John, Mark, and Melissa got together when Christopher was just a baby. And by the time he was two years old, Mark had adopted him. So as far as Christopher was concerned, Mark Byers was his dad. And everyone around that knew them just thought the same. I don't think anybody even considered him to be a stepdad. I mean, that kind of later in the documentaries, they really made clear that he was the adoptive father. I think they even called him a stepfather, but that's not accurate. He was the adoptive father, and from everyone I've spoken to that knew the family and knew Chris 
for all intents and purposes, everybody just considered John Mark Byers to be Christopher Byers' dad. Okay, this next one comes from Stephanie, and she's got four questions for us. First question is, did Christopher Byers run away a lot? No, he didn't. Uh, that was one of the things when I when I talked to Mark Byers. It's important to note that Mark wasn't aware of the police note where Chris had told Bobby Posey that he was running away, and he he still doesn't believe that. I mean, he said, no, I just can't see that. I can't see Chris ever running away. But um, no, he had never done anything like that before. Her next question is, his mother said she heard him upstairs. Was anything missing from his room? If something was missing from the room and never recovered, there could be a trophy out there. Not that I'm aware of. There's been some speculation, and I, I haven't been able to get to the bottom of it enough to really speak intelligently about it. But there's been some speculation about backpacks, where some witnesses saw them with backpacks, some saw them without backpacks. There were no backpacks recovered at the crime scene. So uh, that's the only thing really up in the air. But as far as I know, no, nothing was missing from the bedroom. And her third question is, where did the boys meet up? Chris was at a friend's house, and next they are all together. Did Bobby know anything about the boys having a plan to meet up, or if Chris said he was going to meet them? Not that I'm aware of right now. And, and again, as I mentioned, we're trying to connect with Bobby Posey. Bobby Posey is actually in prison currently, so he's not easy to access. So we, we sent him a, a letter hoping to hear back from him because all we have is that little police note. You know, we have the one witness that said that Michael and Stevie stopped by and said they're going to go get Chris. And then we have Bobby Posey and possibly this Carlos, who we're not sure who that is yet, uh, who said that uh, Bob or Christopher had stopped by and said that he was running away. And the next thing we know, they're together. So I don't know where they met up. And, and it just kind of goes to speak to the neighborhood. You know, it's such a small area. And a lot of this activity took place on either 14th Street or Wilson, uh, which are two parallel streets that both run up towards the Robin Hood area. So, you know, cruising down the bikes in that neighborhood, it's not going to take long to come across somebody. So uh, considering the fact that Chris's skateboard, which is another interesting thing, it's been said that it was Christopher's skateboard, but his brother Ryan testified at trial that when he found the skateboard, that he had never seen that skateboard before, as though it's not actually Chris's skateboard. But Chris was on a skateboard that day. That that skateboard that he was on was found on the street on 14th Street, just north of their home. And that's right about the area where Dana Moore saw all three of them together. She saw Chris on the back of Stevie Branch's bike heading north. So the speculation is that they hooked up there on 14th Street. They came across each other. He hopped on the bike and they took off. But it's just speculation, really. We don't have any witnesses that you know and witnessed or encountered them coming together. And her last question is, was it normal for the boys to ignore Stevie's stepdad? I know that this age group with stepparents can be difficult. Was this a normal relationship? I would be speculating. I don't think so. But to be clear, this is speculation. I've never heard of him being defiant towards Terry Hobbs. Uh, there has been information that's come out later that they didn't have the best relationship. But it was more to the fact these claims, these allegations were that uh, stepdad Terry Hobbs had been abusive to Stevie in the past. Uh, and meaning um, he would, at the very least, maybe overpunish physically. Uh, so that would, to me, that would that would render itself to Stevie being more likely to do what he's told. But at the same time, one of the reasons why I think maybe that they were trying to to run away or get away could have been that because of that relationship, when Stevie realized that he wasn't there when he was supposed to be, maybe he kind of knew what punishment was coming, and that's why he was taking off. But I don't know. I've never heard, you know, according to Pam Hobbs in her earlier statement, Stevie's mom 
sounds like he was he was a well-behaved kid. I mean, he was an honor roll student at the school. He was really progressing quickly in the Cub Scouts. Everybody that's spoken about Stevie that I've spoken with, uh, just people who knew him and the family, uh, was that Stevie was he was just a good kid and pretty much tended to behave himself. So I kind of doubt it, but again, that's speculation. Bob, can we take a second to discuss some of the conduct on the discussion boards on social media? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I did I did want to touch base with this a little bit. So here's the thing. This case is controversial. There are people who have been studying it for years and have very strong opinions about it as far as, you know, the three who are ultimately convicted, which we're going to get to in a few episodes, whether they were guilty or innocent. And all of that's great. However, uh, there's been, you know, in the in the last few days, we put out some posts for, you know, asking for discussion. And there was a post put out, the the pinned post, that I'm asking anybody that knows anyone from the West Memphis area to share to do so to try to find new witnesses. And that's been working great. We've already come across at least a dozen new witnesses from that post. The problem is some of the people that have extremely strong opinions, one in particular, and I'm not going to name his name here, but uh, you'll see it if you go on the page, has just completely taken over the conversation and really kind of taken focus away, like that, especially that particular post. You know, we're reaching out for people who might know something, and then you know, people tend to get kind of scared off because they go to the page and there's people just arguing. So here's the thing. I don't typically ban people from the page or block them. I don't delete comments. I like having a good discussion going, both people that agree with me and disagree with me. You know, that's where we learn a lot. All that's great. However, I, I do want to put out this with new people on the page, and this person is one of them. I want to put out this warning that what I will not tolerate or put up with is people being vulgar and insulting to other people. You know, if, you, if you guys want to have a debate back and forth and you want to put out information, that's great. But I'm not going to put up with people getting, as, on a page that I control, people getting cussed at and called names and things and things of that nature because it's it just completely ruins it. You know, I saw a few posts some, from some newcomers that came on and said, man, I just came on. I wanted to get in on the discussion, but this is awful. You know, people are just 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 ripping into each other. And so consider this fair warning that I will ban people from the page and, and delete comments if that's what's going on. And it's again, it's not because I need everybody to agree with me. I encourage discussion in both sides. But if you can't do it civilly, then you're going to take it somewhere else. And the same applies to the Truth and Justice podcast fan page, where a ton of discussion happens. Now, I don't run that page, but I'm very close with the administrators that do. And this has already come up. They're like, man, do we need to get rid of this person? Because they're just they're just starting fights and they're calling names. Things, comments I've read, you know, Bob's a joke and and you're a joke. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's gotten pretty ugly in there. And we don't want people to be discouraged from having a discussion. We don't want this to turn into Reddit where everybody's just attacking everyone. So be forewarned, uh, you will be blocked and banned from these pages if you can't have a civil discussion. Um, along those lines with this, this particular person that kept bringing up over and over and over again, a few items in the discussion, I guess I'll address real quick. One is, why are we doing this case? Because the boys took an Alfred plea, which means the case can never be, re be reopened again. And here's the thing. An Alfred plea, which this we're, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. That's why I'm hesitant to even talk about this, but I will address it. An Alfred plea is where you plead guilty while maintaining your innocence in exchange for a plea deal, which is typically going to be time served. So, you know, you've been in for 18 years on a life sentence. You say, okay, the, the prosecutor makes a deal. Well, if you plead guilty, I'll sentence you to 18 years and you go home now and this is over with. 
which is what ultimately is going to end up happening in this case uh, without giving too many spoilers. I think most people already knew that. But an Alfred plea is no different than any other guilty plea. So what's been pointed out is the language that says by pleading guilty, you understand that you're waiving all rights to appeals. And and this person is pointing out, well, that means they, they can't appeal. This is stupid. It can't go anywhere. Well, there are many, many people who have pled guilty, taken a plea deal, and they were later exonerated. It happens all the time. And that same language comes with every single guilty plea. Anytime a plea bargain is put into the record, that same language is in there. The only difference between a, quote, Alfred plea and a guilty plea is the fact that the person is maintaining their innocence while they plead guilty. And it's all based on an old case where a gentleman, Mr. Alfred, was trying to take a plea deal and plead guilty, but was telling the judge, I'm innocent, but I'm pleading guilty. Well, the the Constitution doesn't allow that. You can't plead guilty unless you're guilty. And this case ended up setting the precedent that now gives us the Alfred plea. And all it is is the ability to say, I am maintaining my innocence. I am innocent, but I am pleading guilty because it's in my best interest. So that's all an Alfred plea is. But at the end of the day, still a guilty plea. And yes, it can be overturned with new evidence. And yes, the prosecutor doesn't have an obligation to reopen the case. That's correct. But they can, and they have in several different other occasions. Kerry Max Cook is a good example. Now, this wasn't exactly an Alfred plea because he pled no contest, not guilty. But he had the same language in there, too. And it was 20 years later, he ended up having his conviction vacated. And that's due to the use of the federal habeas corpus rules, where with new and compelling evidence, they were able to reopen the case. And that also leads us to Scott Ellington, the current prosecutor, who would be the one that would have the authority to open or not open the case. Scott Ellington, in fact, has made many promises many times that if there is new evidence brought, he will consider it. And if it is compelling evidence, he will reopen. That's a promise that's been made by Ellington. So the idea that because these guys pled guilty, this is all done and over with is just preposterous. I mean, it, it, can, it happens all the time. Furthermore, I'd point out with all the anger that's coming with all these posts, it's very telling to me that someone is this afraid and this insistent that we don't dig into the facts and look for the truth. Because if they're right and the three that were convicted are actually guilty, well, then all it would do is prove that. So we're going to keep pressing forward. We're going to keep digging. We're already finding new information. And there is an end goal here, and that is to bring real truth and justice to this case, both for the three that were convicted and, as I've said many times, most importantly, the forgotten three, Michael, Christopher, and Stevie. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to Chris Brinkley and Katie Ross for their work on the website. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, and Stephanie McConnell. Thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Don't forget you can also use our tip line at 269-224-2833 to leave us a voicemail. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.